Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right. Now, if you would, open to 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin, or rather continue our study in 1 Samuel. We're now toward the end of the first chapter, 1 first chap Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 today. While you're turning there, we've been talking about the local church this quarter, and I really don't have to say much because, in a sense, God has provided so one, of, one important facet of any local church is its leadership. And you may recognize that at Faith Bible Church, we have a plurality or a number of elders who are the primary overseers of the church. The reason for this is not because we think it's most convenient necessarily, but because this is the pattern we find in the New Testament, that every church was to be overseen by a group of godly and qualified men from within that church. And... Those men were to be plural in number, not just one person running the show, safety in those numbers. And those were to be elders. In Scripture, they are exactly the same as those who are called overseers, sometimes spoken of as shepherding. They are shepherds. So any of those words, elders, overseers, shepherds, pastor just means shepherd, bishop just means overseer. So we've got a lot of terms through church history. They all point to the same office. And so God has provided for us in providing a sixth member to the eldership here. With that being said, please join me one more time as we pray now that God would bless His Word as we look to it. Oh God, You have cared for us. You've really cared for us. Not just each of us, but all of us together as a body, when we think of how you've taken us by the hand since our inception some 30 years ago, how you've cared for this local gathering of your people, you have been there at every step through highs and through lows. What can we do in response but simply renew our commitment to offer ourselves entirely to you? Not in a morose way, but we are glad to do it. We're yours, and we're happy to be yours. And what do you require of us? Not more of our things. You want us. And I pray that as a response to your great provision of salvation through Christ, of leadership, of gifts by your Spirit, so the body may function, of ev absolutely everything, that we would, in gratitude, because of your mercies, respond by being a local fellowship, fully dedicated to knowing and doing your will, set apart for honorable use in our generation. Please grant this, that you may be glorified by it, and use your word now toward that end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know that our world is a world that is addicted to getting. It's basically all about getting, pretty much. It's about getting a new job, a better job, greater pay, better perks, getting a spouse, 
Sometimes getting a better spouse, someone might think. Getting a better lover, more passionate. Getting a larger house with more space, more features. Getting a nicer car, getting another car. Whatever it may be, in your case, higher learning, anything. But it's, it's getting. That's what this life is so much about. It is about getting things. There are some who just can't get enough, and they may turn to fraudulent ways to get things, counterfeiting items and selling them as if they were real, to get more money, to get more things, tricking other people out of their things to get their things, all the scam calls and the emails. There are people who cipher money from their company into their bank account to buy more things, but you recognize there are also perfectly legal ways to be about this business of getting. You just put yourself in the right position, put in the right number of hours, maneuver in your company, start the side hustle or another side hustle, and then you get things. The assumption underneath all of this is that getting more is better. And for many of us, the thought of having less is a haunting dread. A.W. Tozer, a great pastor and spiritual of the last century, described the problem like this. Quote, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. Now, in a world like this, if you want to be faithful to Christ, you will be awed. Because at the very heart of our faith is not getting, but rather sacrifice. There's first, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God giving His own Son, Christ giving Himself, not getting, you see, giving Himself for our salvation. But his sacrifice forms a basis that produces our sacrifices, really lives of sacrifices. That's what you're living as a faithful saint. Sacrifice. And that is the opposite of getting. This world is getting and you are living your life with this core value. Giving, not getting, not taking, Losing, not holding, letting go. And you will still have things. And you may still get promotions. And praise God for these things. But you see, at the very core of who you are as a Christian is the idea of sacrifice. And sacrifice is the opposite of getting, especially of getting things. And so it will always stand out in our world. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, writes Paul, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God is not satisfied with you sacrificing some things. No, no, no. It's not a periphery of the Christian life. Sacrifice is the Christian life. So much so that Paul says, you must present your body, yourself. It's you. Everything you are. Everything you have, every relationship, you knew that when you rose up at Christ's call and he said, come, follow me, you were leaving behind whatever it was, Zebedee in the boat, the nets, 
the tax booth, whatever it was, you were leaving it behind and making a complete commitment that you will follow him. And he made this clear. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself every day. Take up your cross and follow me. What do you do on a cross? Christ showed us it's a sacrifice of himself. Losing, not receiving. Now, with all I've just said, if you're living the Christian life, you're living a life of sacrifice. And those on the outside, the world that's all about getting, understandably, I suppose, when they look at us, they're not only confused, but sometimes there's a look of pity in their eyes. <laughs> like these poor, mistaken Christian. I mean, they would say, you can be a Christian if it doesn't affect that much. But those who are really committed, who are living the life of sacrifice, the world looks on and thinks, you had one life? You could have done so well for yourself? And for some pie in the sky by and by, you gave up so much of that. And the assumption is that we Christians, because we're all about sacrifice, will live boring, morose, miserable lives. But you're not living that kind of a life. How is this possible? How is it possible that your whole life is sacrifice and there's joy? It is because Christ has taught us a spiritual mystery, not clear to the world. And it is what we just read in Acts chapter 20. Paul said that Christ told us this. It is more blessed, more joyful, more fulfilling. It is more blessed to give than to get. He was speaking of giving to others, but it is true of the whole Christian life of sacrifice that there is not just sacrifice in our lives, but there is, and I don't know how better to express or explain it, a joy that is in the life of sacrifice. And maybe the best way to explain or express the joy of Christian sacrifice to God is simply to turn our attention back to Hannah, it's the main character here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if we look on her face in our passage today, we will see that joy in sacrifice. She has vowed, you remember, that if God would give her a son, she would offer that son up to the Lord to live at Shiloh, the place of worship, forever and to serve there. And now the time has come for her to fulfill her vow. So look at the sacrifice she makes but see also the joy of her sacrifice. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. The man Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, and all his house, Hannah, Penina, his other wife, her children, went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice at Shiloh and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. 
and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Hannah had made her desperate prayer, including her vow back in verse 11 of our text, where she had promised to God when she was yet infertile and unable to bear children and tormented by Penina, she had promised to God, if you give me a child, then, quote, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Then look down to verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. She made the vow. God fulfills his end of the vow. And now it is time for Hannah to fulfill her part of the vow. Her vow was a Nazarite vow, it seems, but a lifelong Nazarite vow. That's why she said she'll never cut his hair. He was set apart, Samuel, set apart for the Lord's service to stay there in Shiloh to worship before the Lord all his life from the time he was very young. Now, if any of us think that this sacrifice that Hannah is making is an easy sacrifice to give Samuel up to the Lord, you're a robot or a rock. I don't know. If you have even a modicum of human feeling, then you will understand to give this young child up to the Lord, never to see him but just once a year for the rest of his life. You would think that that would be a very miserable kind of sacrifice that Hannah is making. That's reasonable, but what's amazing in our text is there's no evidence of that. Yes, it is a painful sacrifice, as is the Christian life. But there is joy in the sacrifice. And we're going to look at this text then under those two headings. First, to see the sacrifice that Hannah makes and just how great it is. But then to see the surprising joy in sacrificing to the Lord. So let's look first at the greatness of the sacrifice that Hannah makes here. And really there are, I could say, four great things that when you add them together in this passage make up a very great and painful kind of sacrifice on Hannah's part. The very first great thing is a great bond. Look again at the first three verses. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. At first glance, 
You might think that Hannah is trying to delay the keeping of her vow. And we would understand that. This is her own dear son for whom she has prayed. There is a great bond there between a mother and a child born of that mother. And we know now there are hormones involved. There is something remarkable biologically happening. And then probably beyond that in a spiritual sense that unites a mother to a child. So we would understand if Hannah knowing she needs to give up her child, wanted to wait because of the pain of the sacrifice. But that first glance would actually be wrong. There's no indication that Hannah is trying to delay for any sinful reason. In fact, we know that she is a very pious woman. Everything in this first chapter of 1 Samuel has shown us, and the second chapter will also, that she's a godly woman. She certainly would keep what is expressed later in Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. The reason Hannah delays bringing Samuel to Shiloh is practicality. This is a baby, just had Samuel, and she wants to bring Samuel up to the place of worship in Shiloh to stay there with Eli and his household to serve if she were to bring Samuel up immediately, someone would have to provide for that child. In an age where there were not baby foods on shelves, when you would have to find someone to provide milk for this child. So just as a matter of practicality, to keep her end of the vow, she asks her husband, or tells her husband, I'm planning to wait until I've weaned the child, until I don't have to feed the child anymore, then we can take the child and others can feed him other foods. As soon as the child is weaned, she says, I will bring him, still keeping her commitment, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now, Elkanah, on his part, also a godly man, agrees with her decision to wait in our passage. In fact, he agrees with her whole vow. We're told in Numbers chapter 30 that if a man's wife makes a vow and the man hears the vow that she's made, so she tells him whenever she tells him, he at that moment has a period of time where he can annul the vow. He can say, no, we're not going to have that vow. You're not going to have that vow, and God will consider it cleared away. She doesn't have to keep it. So although it's not in the text, we know that at some point Elkanah learned that his wife had vowed away one of his sons in a culture that so highly valued sons. But Elkanah apparently did not think that too excessive a sacrifice to offer to the Lord. He did not annul what she had offered. He agreed with it. And then here, he agrees as well with her plan to wait. Because again, it's only a matter of practicality. They're not sinning. It's not a sinful delay. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. It's hard to get an exact sense of what he means by his last statement. Only may the Lord establish his word because we don't have any clear word from the Lord in our text that he's spoken about them, for him to establish. So probably the idea here is his decree, his governance of all things, his providence. Only may God do, in other words, take the child up when he's weaned, sure. Only may God in the end do what he wills in our life and in Samuel's life in the future. Probably that's the sense. So Hannah is not delaying sinfully out of regret. Actually, Hannah's delay will make this a more difficult sacrifice 
than if she had given Samuel up as a newborn child. In her day, weaning took often about three years of time. Because back then, uh, drinking water, clean drinking water was not in abundant supply. And again, as I said, there's not easy baby food, foods to bring. And so they would often wean the child after about maybe three years. So that's three years of Hannah with her beloved son, whom she had so long longed for, building a bond with that child. Some of you have a three-year-old or thereabouts of a child. Could you imagine the bond that you have with that child, taking that child up to a less than stellar household of Eli at Shiloh, miles and miles away, and leaving that child there? to see only once a year, briefly, at the annual sacrifice. That's what she is doing. It's emphasized at the end of verse 24. And the child was young. This is different, but not entirely unlike what we found in the great sacrifice Abraham was willing to make when God told him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go over there and offer him to me. That's what Hannah is doing here. So Hannah's sacrifice was a great sacrifice because it, it was severing a great bond between mother and child. More than that, it was intensified by a great offering that her and Elkanah gave alongside Samuel. See this in verses 24 and 25. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. It would actually be easy to overlook this great offering, the bull, the flower, the wine, because she's literally offering up her own son. That, of course, is the greatest sacrifice, and there's no number of bulls that would be equal in value to her own son. Even that being the case, what she does offer alongside Samuel is remarkable. It's actually a rather massive offering. It's not a small one. Your translation probably says, like mine, a three-year-old bull. The original could, and most likely does, actually mean three bulls. Verse 25, then, that says they slaughtered the bull. That would be a collective singular, the bulls. Three bulls. Part of the reason for thinking it may be three bulls is if you take the measurement of flour, an ephah, and the skin of wine, which is probably about a bath of wine, that was one of their measurements, and you look back into the law at the commandment when someone brings a vow offering of a bull, if you take the flour and the wine required for one vow offering of a bull and multiply it by three, you get pretty close to these measurements. So very likely, Hannah's bringing three bulls with this massive amount of flour and a massive amount of wine, flour and wine representing what you live on. It's what, it's what you eat. Bread is their main staple, and wine is what you drink. Bringing all of that. There's no individual in the entire Old Testament law who was ever required to offer a bull to the Lord because a bull was expensive. I don't know if we could compare a bull to a car in our day. It's an expensive thing. 
Meat was a rarity. In the law, many sacrifices, you know, were of sheep, not as expensive. And if you were poor, you could offer birds. But here Hannah brings three bulls. Never required of an individual, but allowed as a vow offering. Now, you may not know the whole measurements, ephah and a bath. We don't use those measurements today. Let me just say, it was a lot. It was a whole lot. It was what we would almost consider an excessive sacrifice. It was the woman breaking open the pure nard to pour on Jesus before his death. This was an excessive offering that was brought. Now, Elkanah apparently was a man of some means. He had two wives, usually would indicate that at that time. But it was still a loss. It was a loss of wealth. This was a great offering. Thirdly, this is a great sacrifice because there is a great desire involved. Verses 26 and 27 record Hannah's words to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Now, we're not at all surprised to hear her saying, my Lord, my Lord, to Eli, because you remember her last interchange with Eli earlier in this chapter. She said, my Lord and your servant. There's a humility in Hannah. We're familiar with that by now. Now, let us just remember how ardently Hannah had prayed for what? For this very child that she brings with her, this three-year-old Samuel who stands beside her, she's now back at the place where she was praying, there in the place of worship at Shiloh. She was in that place before, and there she is again, and now she has her three-year-old child. When she was there before, she prayed so ardently that Eli thought she was drunk. How many tears fell to the ground year after year after year with Hannah piously and fervently requesting that God would give her what she now has. So it was a great, powerful desire that she petitioned of the Lord, and now God has given her what she prayed for. So it's a great sacrifice to give that up. You've ever prayed for something fervently, ardently, and then the golden sunshine of God's smiling answer? You receive it, and your life is changed forever to take that then and to give it away, to go back in some sense to your former condition. She's not barren anymore. She'll have more children, although she probably doesn't know that. We'll see that later in the text. It means it was a very great sacrifice that she offered to the Lord because it touched on a great desire. And this, by the way, you may have worried, even in previous weeks, as we talked about her prayers for a child, you may, if you're well-versed in biblical counseling especially, have thought, now is that an idol of her heart? Because she so much wants a child, and we've all known people where that's really an idol of their life. That's a fair thing to consider, but I think she proves right here, beyond all reasonable doubt, that this child for which she prayed was not an idol of her heart. It was a great desire, but she's willing to give him up to the Lord. And if you have an idol, even a good thing that you desire becomes an idol, you're not willing to give it up, not without a fight, but she willingly is giving the child up. Here she was, someone who craved motherhood. One moment it's in her hands, and then she willingly, she didn't have to keep her vow. She could break her vow, but she lets it slip through her fingers. She gives motherhood up. 
This is a great sacrifice. Finally, it's a great sacrifice because there's a great separation. Verse 28. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, this is exactly what she had vowed earlier in verse 11. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. All the days. Not temporarily, but all of the days I will give him. Like I said, Hannah would have other sons and daughters. But anyone here has lost a child in the womb or out of the womb. There's a sense in which you never forget. And she's, in effect, losing her very first child for which she prayed. The other children don't, in a sense, really make up for that. Hannah would come up to Shiloh once a year. She'll see her child briefly every year. Apart from that, she won't see him. This is a permanent arrangement. And we'll see later in this book that Shiloh will eventually be destroyed. Samuel will move back to Ramah, his hometown. I don't know if Hannah was still alive. But again, that's all in the future. She doesn't know any of that. All she knows is a great separation between her and the child she loves. I know that the word that's used here is lent in the ESV. That could be just slightly misleading because we think of lending as a temporary arrangement. The reason that word is chosen here is actually because in the original Hebrew, there's a play on a word. There is the same root in four words that are used in verses 27 and 28. So in verse 27, when it speaks of her petition that she made, literally it's the petition I petitioned, it's the exact same root, though a different form, when you get to the next passage and she says, therefore I have lent him to the Lord all his days he has lent. So she chooses that word in part because it is a play on the idea of petitioned. But don't misunderstand. Lent means exactly the same thing that she meant in verse 11 when she said, I, have, I will give. I will give. It is a permanent lending. It is a giving of the child. It's not that after so many years I'll come pick him up. It's not boarding school for the summer. I'm giving permanently him to God's service here at Shiloh or wherever God may take this child. I just know he won't be with me. That maternal affection, that care that a mother has for a child, that normal, very normal and natural mother's longing for the child, that whole relationship now and into later years, at this moment, she's giving all of that up. Whatever her relationship with Samuel after this, it will not be normal. It will not be typical. It will not have her frequently involved in his life. She's aware of this and she's giving him up. There will be a great separation that takes place between mother and child in this life. And it is permanent. So a great bond, a great offering, a great desire, a great sacrifice, great separation, sorry. All of these together, I hope you can see in our text, make for a massive sacrifice on Hannah's part. This is not putting some money in an offering plate. This is a massive sacrifice. But you know what's really interesting in our text? Is you and I infer, we guess, looking at the text, wow, that was painful. Because we can put ourselves in her shoes and think how painful that would be. But you know what we don't actually see in the text anywhere? Any suggestion that it was painful. 
That's not because it wasn't painful. I am certain it was. But it's because the focus is elsewhere, in the text and for Hannah. It was not on the sacrifice itself as much as it was on the joy of her sacrifice. And it is to that heading we now turn. We've seen the greatness of the sacrifice. Let's see the joy of the sacrifice for her and for us. Notice again her words starting in verse 26. And she said, Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. The beginning of this statement shows motion. You see that. Oh, my Lord! Exclamation mark in the ESV there. As you live, my Lord! There is some emotion. It's not just a pale, unfeeling statement on her part. There is some emotion. And what does she feel some emotion about? She recounts what God has done in her life. She says, you won't believe this, my Lord. I was the woman who, standing here, prayed so ardently you thought I was intoxicated. I was praying, and Eli may not have known this until this point. I was praying for this child. And now look, there's the child. What I asked of the Lord, what I petitioned, He granted to me. So in a sense, she's come back to the very same place but she is not in the same place. You understand? She's in a very different place now. Not the tears, not the weeping. There is some joy. And you might say, well, the text doesn't say there was joy. She could have been crying. But you're going to see next week, chapter 2 records her prayer, which was in light of this event. And that prayer begins, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, that's my strength, is exalted in the Lord. But you gave your child up. What are you talking about? Yes, but just that the Lord heard, that the Lord intervened, is a kind of salvation. That's the end of verse 1 of chapter 2. I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah's focus, even in her sacrifice, is on God's salvation. It's that he heard. She loses Samuel, but she keeps the meaning of Samuel's name as a promise forever. God has heard. She is rejoicing in God's salvation, even as she loses this child. What can we call this but gratitude? That's what's here. It's gratitude. There is a gratefulness in Hannah, and notice... It's in the midst of one of the greatest sacrifices, if not the greatest sacrifice of her entire life. This text, the end of it, what she says, together with the prayer of chapter 2, there is an immense gratitude because of God's salvation. In fact, verse 28 there says she's giving. The reason she's keeping her painful vow is, quote, therefore. It's because I prayed and God gave a great salvation, a great deliverance. There was Penina tormenting me. Here I was wishing I could have a child. There you were, God. But it seemed like you just weren't listening. And I prayed, pleading, pleading. And then you heard. And you did something. In this case, opened my womb and delivered me from that former condition. Now I see you here. You're involved in my life. 
Therefore, in light of so great a deliverance on the part of Yahweh, I'm keeping my vow and I have lent him. I'm making a massive sacrifice on the basis of this gratitude, this wonder in the face of God's salvation. And this is just the way of Christian sacrifice. It always has a flavor of gratitude in it. That's the thing that the world can't fully understand or comprehend. It sees Samuel given away at Shiloh and thinks, what a pity, how painful, how terrible. It sees the Christian life lived out, living on the basis of our convictions, and you lose your job, or you don't get the promotion, or you give up some form of entertainment that's not helping you spiritually, but you miss that form of entertainment. And the world looks and thinks, why the sacrifices? How sad to live that kind of life. But there's always a flavor of gratitude in Christian sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that often sheds tears, but it's a sacrifice that also often smiles. We're not a morose and miserable people, not all the time. There is a flavor of gratitude about us. And why would that be? Could it be that we too have experienced a great salvation. Isn't that the basis of ours? Yes, I get it. Chapter 2, verse 1, when she speaks of God's salvation, she's focused on her deliverance in a small sense of having a child. But notice how it's worded, salvation, to connect it clearly with what you and I experience in Christ. We had something much worse than Hannah's situation. Much worse than Hannah's situation. And if you remember, when we described Hannah's situation, it was bad. Emotionally bad, painful and agonizing. And yet, the ground that we walked, every single one of us, for some large span of our life, was heated, if I may put it this way, by the flames of hell that we were aware were underneath us. At some point, gaining a sense that because of our sin, we deserved an eternal judgment. What in your life is worse than that? There's nothing in your life that's worse than that. And we could say, like David will later say, there was only one step between me and death, but for us it was an eternal death. That hounded us all our lives in a fear of death because after death comes judgment, the uncertainty of what that would mean. That's where we lived our lives hating and being hated, all kinds of other evils and torments, seeing the consequences of our sin, but without the power to overcome it, and then a future judgment awaiting us, that was our life. Whatever the other details, I don't know all those for you. But that was your life. And then, someone brought their beloved son up to the place of sacrifice. But it was God. And he brought Christ, and he offered him a great sacrifice. But in this case, so that we could have salvation. And I don't know for you, that moment when you trusted in Christ, your own conscience at that point was testifying, he's guilty. There's nowhere you could hide. And at that moment, when all is brought to light and you looked upon Christ, the great sacrifice, and immediately your record of guilt was cleared. The ground cools down. The threat of judgment is gone. Having been justified by faith, says Romans 5, we have peace with God. There is therefore, says Romans 8, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
if you know such a great salvation like that, then the small sacrifices of this life, you take them with joy. They still hurt. I'm not saying they don't hurt. You know, they still hurt. But they're different. You don't look at them like an atheist staring out into a star-filled sky and thinking, we're nothing, we lead to nothing, we come from nothing. But you realize that you are embraced in the love of God, you are delivered from judgment through Christ. Death is the worst thing that can happen to you, and that just ushers you into an eternity of joy. And that gives a flavor of gratitude to your sacrifices. How can someone like Hannah keep so painful a vow? With joy. God's salvation. And when we have a good sense of God's grace toward us, His salvation that He has given to us, then we do become a bit like Count Zinzendorf, a great missionary leader of long ago, the German, who in his younger life stood before a picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And we read with him the line along the bottom, suffering Christ, along the bottom, all this I've done for you. Now, what will you do for me? That's where Christian sacrifices partly, as we'll get to, originate. Gratitude. We're so grateful for what he's done. Just like Hannah in our text. So great a salvation. If you see that rare man or woman, you find them sometimes in life. I'm not one of them, but I want to become one. But you find them sometimes in life. Nothing gets them down. <laughs> they live their life with joy. Their car breaks down. They're standing on the side of the road it's, and, and they just think genuinely, but what a nice day. <laughs> How do you become that? It's gratitude. It changes the trials. It changes the sacrifices that you make. The Christian ideal is a life of sacrifice, but not like the world thinks. It is a life of joy in sacrifice. This comes from gratitude, but as we close now, you'll notice in this text, it's only suggested. It doesn't just come from gratitude. This is not to say, listen, Jesus did so much for you, so get your act together and sacrifice everything. That's actually not quite sufficient of a motivation. It won't drive you long term. Gratitude is one piece of things, but notice the very last verse in our text and the very final line. And he worshiped the Lord there. He could be Elkanah. Could be Samuel looking at later in life. He's only three now. Actually, the Hebrew could mean they worship the Lord there. It could be understood that way. So it's all of them worshiping. The point is somebody is worshiping here. The context of our passage is worship. They're at a place of worship. Hannah is fulfilling a vow of worship. And immediately afterward, there is worship that takes place. The reason that our sacrifices like Hannah's, though so great, have joy filling them, is gratitude, but at the end of the day, it's worship. It's when we come before God and think, such a great God that I can sacrifice for Him to be amazed by the glory of His face, His great salvation, and who He is. That is what gets you to Hannah's place, even when the sacrifice of the Christian life becomes so bitingly intense, you can barely bear it anymore. What gets you through that? How do you keep going if there's martyrdom in the future for us or our children or grandchildren, which has been common throughout Christian history? How do you get through that? It's hard even to imagine. It has to be a sense of the worshipful worth of God. It's 
Hard to take Samuel to Shiloh, whatever your Samuel is, whatever you have to offer up, you who are parents of children, you have to now, not in the future, but now, commit in your mind and your heart that every last one of your children you are offering up to God at Shiloh. They're not yours. They belong to God. They are loaned to you. Whatever else, your hopes, your aspirations, you take them up to Shiloh with Hannah. You go up there to offer them to the Lord. He can do what He wants with them. He can give them back, like He'll do with Samuel later when He moves to Ramah. Or He can keep them forever. But that's the Christian call. And how do you do that with any kind of joy and not misery? You know it. It's like, it's like the pain of losing weight if you have a few extra pounds. It hurts to lose weight, so I'm told, I know. But it hurts. <laughs> Bear with me. It hurts, I know, to lose that weight. But it is a kind of loss that in the end is good and refreshing. And so is sacrifice in the Christian life. So may God grant every single one of us to offer not just one, two, three things that we possess, not just this relationship or that, but to offer our very selves, because that is our spiritual worship.